This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Show. This is episode 128. Glad to have you back in the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you, if you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find me on social media on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, and you can subscribe to my YouTube page. Just go out and look for Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to look for all those things, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Go to the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. You can also give me an email address there, and I will give you a free ebook and audiobook. Forgotten Founders in American History, the audiobook read by yours truly. Also, if you're on my uh, webpage, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw me a few pennies, help keep the lights going, help keep this podcast up and running. Also, I want to remind you that I have a new product, mcclanahanacademy.com. If you go there, you'll find two courses that I have for sale right now. One is Secession, an American tale. The other is how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America for from now until the end of December, I'm giving coupons, so you can get a little discount on those on the Secession and American Tale class. If you put in 15 Secession, you get five bucks off the class, so you get it for 25 bucks. It's a steal. And if you put in half Hamilton at checkout for the Hamilton class, I'll give you the Hamilton class for half price, $36. So again, quite a steal on that one. 12 lectures for that class, five lectures for the Secession class. You can't beat it. Going out to mclanahanacademy.com. There will be more classes in the future, so this is just the beginning of what I'm going to be offering. So it's a great opportunity to learn about secession, learn about Alexander Hamilton, and they would make great gifts gifts for Christmas. Also, just for a great gift for Christmas, you could get my How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America autographed. Again, just go to my webpage. You'll find it at the bottom of the page. Just click on Books at the top of the page, and you can find the book. 25 bucks will get you an autographed copy. So think about doing that as well. And when you do get a book, please leave a review on Amazon. And also, please leave a review on iTunes for this podcast. Okay, all of that said, I'm really excited about the McClanahan Academy, by the way. I think it's going to be a great time for, for everyone who likes continuing education. And uh, the future courses that I have planned are going to be just awesome. So be looking out for that. You will get some emails about it if you're on my email list. All right, well, I want to do something a little different today, Um, and in fact, I'm going to read a few things, and these two particular talks, neither one is very long, and one is is actually quite long, but um, I'm only going to read parts of it, and I want to compare what these two individuals said about the Union, about the United States, and I'm not going to tell you who they are until the end of the podcast, but... um, Know that the issue at hand here in both cases was a tariff. So that might tip my hand a little bit, but uh, show my hand and who these people are. But the issue at hand is a tariff. And so when we talk about United States history, and this is something I often say in my classes, you know, when we get to uh, the 1790s, even, you know, tariffs become important. In fact, uh, George Mason was quite concerned about what he called navigation laws at the Philadelphia Convention. He was uh, interested in having a constitutional amendment that would have prohibited navigation laws. And so what did he mean by navigation laws? Essentially, he's talking about tariffs. 
And so when you look at tariff legislation, it is one of the most important parts of American history. Beginning really in the, in, well, if you look at the founding period, you know, tariffs, taxes on imports and exports were highly controversial even in the founding period, which led to some resentment toward the British crown and parliament. And then you get into the early founding period and you talk about the United States uh, government, you talk about the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, and trade policy was also a big deal at that time. You know, one of the issues that people had with the Articles of Confederation, this led to the Mount Vernon Conference before the Philadelphia Convention, was the fact that uh, states could essentially enact tariffs against each other. So the idea was to have a free trade zone within the Union. And then, of course, moving forward, we have issues of tariffs, uh, whether it's uh, the issue of a tariff uh, between uh, you know, the states, which were eliminated by the Constitution, or then foreign, foreign trade. Now, of course, the Constitution does not allow for uh, taxes on exports. There are no export taxes, but it did not mean that you could not have taxes on imports. But what were these taxes supposed to be like was the main question. Were these taxes allowed to be prohibitive, meaning were they allowed to be protective, where they would protect American manufacturers from foreign competition, or were they for revenue uh, purposes only, meaning that it was their design to raise revenue for the central government, and that was it? This was the main question. And of course, George Mason was suspicious that if the North was allowed to have the ability to tax, they would tax the South out of existence. This was the main contention when it came down to representation. It's why the South wanted to count slaves as one whole person towards representation in Congress, and why the North didn't want to count them at all. Because when it came down to direct taxes, uh, we had some major disagreements between the North and the South. The South was highly concerned that the North would have too much power, that they would tax too much, and the South would be taxed out of existence. And when you look, go forward into you know, early, the early Federal Republic, and you look at some of the major issues, one of the issues came up was a carriage tax. The only place where, a, where carriages were really that prominent was in the South. So this was primarily a tax paid by Southerners, and uh, people like Aeneas Burke of, uh, of, I'm sorry, Adonis Burke of South Carolina, not Aeneas, Adonis Burke of South Carolina, um, said, look, if they can tax carriages, uh, they can tax any form of property. And of course, he was eventually, essentially talking about slaves. But uh, the, the, the fact was that Southerners were quite concerned that the North would find any way they could to levy taxes on the South and not have to pay them themselves. Uh, so they were going to find property or the ability to tax in ways that would hurt the South and not the North. So as we move forward, we get into a period where we start talking about tariffs. And of course, Hamilton was interested in a tariff system when he uh, issued his report on the public credit. Uh, he was interested in, in having the United States have a revenue-producing tariff, um, which might have been somewhat protective in nature, though uh, Hamilton at this point, was not necessarily a protectionist, but he was interested in having some type of revenue through a tariff. Uh, and, of course, he also was interested in direct taxes, which um, he promised would not happen when the Constitution was going through ratification in the Federalist Essays. He said only in you know, extreme circumstances. Well, that extreme circumstance lasted very little time, you know, three years. Um, there was no war or anything going on. So I want to read these two talks 
that these two individuals made. And then I'll get into the history and what's going on here after I read parts of them. So the first one is, is, uh, is rather short. But the uh, second, I'm going to read a little bit more of it because it also gets into not just the tariff itself, but also American government. So uh, let's start with the first. And again, I'm not going to tell you who this is until I finish this particular talk. So we are, sir, from principle and habit attached to the union of the states. But our attachment is to the substance and not to the form. It is to the good which the union is capable of producing and not to the evil, which is suffered unnaturally to grow out of it. If the time should ever arrive when this union shall be holden together by nothing but the authority of law, when its incorporating vital principles shall become ex extinct, when its principal exercises shall consist of acts of power and authority, not of protection and beneficence, when it shall lose the strong bond which it hath hitherto had in the public affection, and when, consequently, we shall be one, not in interest and mutual regard, but in name and form only, we, sir, shall look on that hour as the closing scene of our country's prosperity. We shrink from the separation of the states as an event fraught with incalculable evils, and it is among our strongest objections to the present course of measures that they have, in our opinion, a very dangerous and alarming bearing on such an event. If a separation of the states should ever take place, it will be on some occasion when one portion of the country undertakes to control, to regulate, and to sacrifice the interest of another, when a small and heated majority in the government, taking counsel of their passions and not of their reason, contemptuously disregarding the interests and perhaps stopping the mouths of a large and respectable minority, shall by hasty, rash, and ruinous measures threaten to destroy essential rights and lay waste the most important interests. That's the first. Now let me read some from the second. <clears throat> the committee has have bestowed on the subjects referred to them the deliberate attention which their importance demands, and the result on full investigation is a unanimous opinion that the acts of Congress of the last session, with the whole system of legislation imposing duties on imports, not for revenue, but the protection of one branch of industry at the expense of others, is unconstitutional, unequal, and oppressive, and calculated to corrupt the public virtue and destroy the liberty of the country. Which propositions they propose to consider in the order stated, and then to conclude the report with consideration of the important question of the remedy. The advocates of the tariff have offered no such proof. It is true that the third section of the first article of the Constitution authorizes Congress to lay and collect an impose an impost duty, but it is granted as a tax power for the sole purpose of revenue, a power in its nature essentially different from that of imposing protective or prohibitory duties. Their objects are incompatible. The, the prohibitory system must end in destroying the revenue from imports. It has been said that the system is, an, is a violation of the spirit and not the letter of the Constitution. The distinction is not material. The Constitution may be grossly violated by acting against its meaning as against its letter but it may be proper to dwell a moment on the point in order to understand more fully the real character of the acts under which the interests of this and other states similarly situated has been sacrificed. The facts are few and simple. The Constitution grants, the powers, grants to Congress the power of imposing a duty on imports for revenue, 
which power is being abused, abused and by being converted into an instrument of rearing up the industry of one section of the country on the ruins of another. The violation then consists in using a power granted for one object to advance another, and that by the sacrifice of the original object. In a word, it is, in a word, a violation by perversion, the most dangerous of all, because the most insidious and difficult to resist. In the absence of arguments drawn from the Constitution itself, the advocates of the power have attempted to call in the aid of precedent. The committee will not waste their time in examining the instances quoted. If they were strictly in point, they would be entitled to little weight. Ours is not a government of precedence nor can they be admitted except to a very limited extent and with great caution in the interpretation of the Constitution without changing in time the entire character of the instrument. The only safe rule is in the Constitution itself, or if that be doubtful, the history of the times. In this case, if doubt exists, the journals of the Convention itself would remove them. On this, great principle of, on this great principle, our political system rests. We consider all powers as delegated by the people and to be controlled by them, who are interested in their just and proper exercise, and our governments, both state and general, are but a system of judicious contrivances to bring this fundamental principle into fair, practical operation. Among the most prominent of these is the responsibility of representatives to their constituents through frequent periodical elections in order to enforce a faithful performance of their delegated trust. Without such a check on their powers, however clearly they may be defined and distinctly prescribed, our liberty would be a mockery. The government, instead of being directed to the general good, would speedily become but the instrument to aggrandize those who might be interested, I'm sorry, might be entrusted with his administration. On the other hand, if laws were uniform in their operation, if that which imposed a burden on one imposed it likewise on all, or that which acted beneficially for one acted also in the same manner for all. The responsibility of representatives to their constituents would alone be sufficient to guard against abuse and tyranny, provided the people be sufficiently intelligent to understand their interest and the motives and conduct of their public agents. But if it be supposed that from diversity of interests in the several classes and sections of the country, the laws act differently, so that the same law, though couched in general terms and apparently fair, shall in reality transfer the power and property of one class or section to another. In such case, responsibility to constituents, which is but the means of enforcing fidelity of representatives to them, must prove wholly insufficient to preserve the purity of public agents or the liberty of the country. It would, in fact, fall short of the evil. Our system then consists of two distinct and independent governments. The general powers expressly delegated to the general government are subject to its sole and separate control, and the states cannot, without violating the, con the constitutional compact, interpose their authority to check or in any manner to counteract its movements so long as they are confined to the proper sphere. So also the peculiar and local powers reserved to the states are subject to their exclusive control, nor can the general government interfere in any manner with them without violating the constitution. With these views, the committee are solemnly of the impression, if the present usurpations in the professed doctrines of the existing system be preserved in, 
after due forbearance on the part of the state, that it will be her sacred duty to interpose a duty to herself, to the Union, to the present, and to future generations, and to the cause of liberty over the world, to arrest the progress of usurpation which, if not arrested, must in its consequences corrupt the public morals and destroy the liberty of the country. So, that last part is actually a well over 4,000 word speech, uh, or a written, not a speech, but a written document. The first was a speech given in public. Uh, so, if you look at these two things side by side, of course, in both instances, I'm discussing tariffs. In the first instance, I'm discussing a tariff. In the second instance, I'm discussing a tariff. They're from different time periods, but not too far apart. And they're from two of the most prominent American statesmen of the antebellum period, of the second generation of Americans, but no doubt from two of the most important of that second generation of Americans. The first was a speech given in 1812. And this particular speech was given because this individual from this place considered tariffs to be uh, an unconstitutional and oppressive burden on his constituents. Because this, at this time, this particular representative, who was often called a statesman, one of the great statesmen of the period, thought that uh, a tariff, a protective measure, these protective measures which had been passed by the general government and signed by the president, were destroying the economy of his section. And his section in this particular case was New England. This particular representative is Daniel Webster of Massachusetts. So let me go back and read this again. We are, sir, from principle and habit attached to the union of the states, but our attachment is to the substance and not to the form. It is to the good which the union is capable of producing and not to the evil which is suffered unnaturally to grow out of it. If the time should ever arrive when this union shall be holding together by nothing but the authority of law, when its incorporating vital principle shall become extinct, when its principal exercise shall consist in acts of power of authority, not of protection and beneficence, it, when it shall lose the strong bond which it hath hitherto had in the public affection, and when consequently we shall be one, not an interest of mutual regard, but in name and form only, we, sir, shall look on that hour as the closing scene of our country's prosperity. So what Daniel Webster was railing against here were the Embargo Acts, which had been passed by the Congress during the Jefferson administration and signed by Jefferson, and of course, which had been destroying, in many ways, the lifeblood of New England, which at that time was trade, commerce. They were not industrializing yet. They had infant industries, but the fact was these tariffs, these embargoes, New England saw as unconstitutional because they, they destroyed the economy of one section. And so the union to them became name only. It did not benefit them at all to be in the union. This is Daniel Webster in 1812. Daniel Webster the secessionist. Daniel Webster the nullifier. Daniel Webster the individual who, who went to the Hartford Convention. And the Hartford Convention, which was interested in a position which many thought was secession, that produced a series of constitutional amendments that they thought were necessary to preserve the Union. Included in those constitutional amendments was a call to remove the three-fifths compromise to the Constitution. Why? Because they were concerned that their political power was threatened at all times by a much more powerful South. Uh, a, a series of constitutional amendments that would restrict the ability of the general government to pass embargoes. 
uh, a, a, a series of amendments which would have restricted the ability of the general government to admit new states that would have required the presidency to rotate, that would have required a one-term limit for the president. All of these things were angled at political power, and they were concerned because they thought the government was being used against them. As, as has been discussed on this podcast before, one of the great dangers of the Union, one of the great dangers of centralization, is that you are going to have a tyranny of the majority. And in this particular case, New England thought they were a permanent political minority, and so they needed some protection, as Webster says. At the end of this, he was concerned that the government could uh, stop the mouths of a large and respectable minority by hasty, rash, ra- by hasty, rash, and ruinous measures and lay waste their most important interests. So the government could do these things through a majority. So Webster was in a political minority in Massachusetts in 1812. What's interesting is that the second talk that I gave, the second uh, discussion, was actually written by John C. Calhoun in 1828, just 16 years after Webster made these comments. John C. Calhoun writes his uh, exposition and protests against the Tariff of Abominations of 1828. And now Calhoun is saying virtually the exact same thing. And Daniel Webster will go stand on the Senate floor in 1830, and then again after that, uh, he'll, he'll debate Robert Hayne of South Carolina and John C. Calhoun of South Carolina about the importance of a protective tariff. Why? Because in 1828, Daniel Webster had decided, his constituents had decided, that a protective measure was actually good for New England, and they had the support to get it through the Congress. But now, but 16 years removed, we've seen Daniel Webster, the flip-flopper. In fact, what you would find, and this is something that I think is very important to understand about antebellum America, it's very important, critical, is that what you find throughout American history, up until 1861, the North was always sectional. Always. Now, Calhoun spoke of sections in the exposition and protest. He spoke of sectional government. He spoke of the need of sections to be protected against each other. But he also said that the best way to do that was to have a government of limited powers. Essentially the same thing Daniel Webster is saying in 1812. But what happens is interesting. The New Englanders were all for that in 1812. They were all for having a government of limited and defined powers because their section was threatened. By 1828, though, they're singing a different tune because they become nationalists because nationalism then works for their section. They were always sectionalists. The South had always been interested in union, in a government that benefited all and burdened all equally, a union of clearly defined and limited powers. As Calhoun said, and let me read that one part again because it's important, our system then consists of two distinct and independent governments, He's talking about the general governments and the state governments. The general powers, expressly delegated to the general government, are subject to its sole and separate control. And the states cannot, without violating the constitutional compact, interpose their authority to check or in any manner to counteract its movements, so long as they are confined to the proper sphere. 
This is an argument that often comes up. Well, these states are just going to nullify everything. The general government is going to pass a law and it's going to just, they're going to nullify anything they want. Calhoun is saying here they cannot do that. As long as the powers of the general government are confined to their proper sphere, as long as they are, um, as long as they are uh, follow the expressly delegated powers of the general government, the states cannot interpose. So also, he goes on, the peculiar and local powers reserved to the states are subject to their exclusive control, nor can the general government interfere in any manner with them without violating the Constitution. So what he's saying is that the states have powers too. The states have powers too, and the general government cannot interfere with those powers. And those powers are unlimited except which are restricted by the Constitution. So Calhoun is saying the exact same thing that Daniel Webster was saying just 16 years before, that the Union is of limited and defined powers, that it cannot trample the powers of the states, that the sections have to be mutually represented and respected. If they are not, you will destroy the Union. That is an important, important position. Webster and Calhoun are speaking the same language. It's just that we don't we often don't look at Daniel Webster of 1812. We look at Daniel Webster of 1828. Uh, and so when I read the part too, I mean this is again when I read the, the part from Calhoun where he talks about uh, where if there is no check on the power of the of the government, well then you're going to essentially have tyranny. That the representatives, if you have general powers, which are expressly delegated and defined, then frequent elections are fine to ensure that the sections, and he talks about sections, are benefited and burdened equally by the union. But when the general government exceeds those powers, representation no longer works. It's often said that, well, I mean, if, if you don't like what the general government's doing, just elect somebody better. But that's not going to work. Calhoun is saying that cannot work if the general government is exceeding its powers. Why can it not work? Because one section, one class, one group will run roughshod over the other. Because the general government has exceeded its powers. It's, it's exceeded its ability to be checked by mere representation. It's the same thing that Daniel Webster was saying in 1812. If the general government goes beyond its delegated authority, then representation no longer works. There has to be some other check. Now, Calhoun talked about in this exposition and protest that you have the amendment process. He talked about how uh, the states could amend the Constitution. Uh, that, that could work if they wanted to. If they wanted to amend the Constitution, they could change anything. But he also talks about how the states have a duty to interpose, this is state interposition, to stop unconstitutional acts. And Daniel Webster would have agreed with that position in 1812. He, in fact, would have agreed, Calhoun actually said at one point, um, that if you get to a point where the general government is too far out of control, then you might need to secede from the Union. I didn't read that section, but that's what he got into. Well, I mean, if, if we can't 
Uh, if we cannot control the general government, then secession, which he doesn't call it secession. But he does say that there should be a dissolution of the political association. He says this is the ultimate and highest power and the basis on which the whole system rests. If the states cannot stop the general government from from abusing its powers, then you need a dissolution of the political association, which essentially is what Daniel Webster is saying in 1812 as well. So you have two statesmen here, 16 years apart, Calhoun and Webster are part of the great, the great triumvirate, right? This is Clay, Calhoun, and Webster. These are the three men that defined, really, the second generation of Americans in the Congress over several decades, beginning with 18, the election of 1812 and moving on up through 1850, when Calhoun was the first to die. So uh, for you know, almost 40 years, these men dominated the halls of Congress. And they said similar things at different times. You know, Webster was in the House of Representatives. Calhoun was in the House of Representatives. And so was Clay in 1812. Or, uh, and uh, so we had a situation where these individuals well knew each other. Then, of course, eventually they'd all end up in the Senate. And Calhoun, of course, at one time was vice president. Uh, Clay had been secretary of state. Webster had been secretary of state. Uh, Calhoun had been secretary of state, uh, secretary of... Uh, you know, so he he had been uh, in in the government, in the general government, in several different positions in the executive branch. These men were some of the most important men uh, in the United States government. So, uh, when you look at what they're saying, first of all, one of the things you know, you don't find anything in that in that talk by Calhoun that's mentioning slavery at all. He's talking about mere economics, mere sections in the interests of agriculture, as opposed to. Uh, manufacturing in 1828. So it's important to understand that these men are singing the same tune, that the union to them was only important if its powers, the powers of the general government, were clearly defined and limited. And so tariffs were a political question. Were they constitutional or not? I think you can, Calhoun makes a very good case that a protective measure is not constitutional because it violates what we would call the general welfare clause. It is not for the general welfare of the union, but for the general welfare of one section over another. The same thing that Webster said would be also unconstitutional. The embargo was not for the general welfare of the union. Protective tariffs are not for the general welfare of the union. A revenue-producing tariff, as Calhoun brings up in the speech, is for the general welfare of the union, but a protective measure is not. And so we have to be very careful when we start looking at these easy, cartoonish caricatures of American history to look at the nuances and understand the complexity of American history. It's not so simple. It's not so simple. And things change over time. But one thing was very consistent, and that is the principle that if the union exceeds its powers, there is no representation cannot check it. If the general government exceeds its powers, representation is powerless to check it. The only thing that can check it is the authority of the states. In fact, one government has to check another. Only government can check a government. In this case, the people represented through the states have to use the states as a mechanism to check the central authority if it abuses its power. So that is an important concept to understand. One thing that both Webster and Calhoun agreed on just 16 years apart. But you wouldn't know it if all you ever read was the Webster-Hain debate. 
so I think it's important to understand Daniel Webster, the sectionalist, the northerner, because that's really all he was his entire life. And then Calhoun, the unionist, which is what he was his entire life. Two different types of, of views of, of, uh, of society, but committed at one point or another to the limited nature of the general government. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClendon Show. <laughs>